Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. And that Upworthy post went viral. And because the Kickstarter had ended, the only place to go to buy Goldie Blocks was our Shopify website. And so in addition to the quarter million dollars or so that we had raised on Kickstarter, we did an additional uh, over half a million dollars in sales on our Shopify website. Hey, my name is Felix. And I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. Build a Bigger Business is the next evolution of Shopify's annual Build a Business competition. Eligible Shopify merchants and those who switch to Shopify before February 28th who have made between $1 million and $50 million in 2016 can enter to compete against other businesses of similar scale over the course of five months. Two grand prize winners will be chosen based on highest growth in sales and highest percentage growth, along with six additional winners across different categories. Of course, bigger businesses mean bigger prizes, including a business getaway to Fiji with Tony Robbins, the opportunity to ring the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange, a million-dollar marketing package brought to you by Sid Lee, C2 Montreal, Allison & Partners, and more, and 24 months of Shopify Plus for free. All participating merchants will get special access to Shopify's Build a Bigger Business Academy, including business mentors like Debbie Sterling, exclusive resources, and more. The deadline to enter is February 28th. Visit shopify.com slash B-A-B-B to apply today. If you're not eligible, stay tuned for the original Build a Business competition that will be relaunching later this year. In this episode, you'll learn how to network to improve the success of your Kickstarter campaign, how to create easily shareable assets for influencers, and how to keep telling your brand story in different ways. Today, I'm joined by Debbie Sterling from Goldie Blocks. Goldie Blocks creates awesome toys, games, and entertainment for girls designed to develop early interest in engineering and confidence in problem solving. And was started in 2012 and based out of Oakland, California. Debbie is also a winner of Shopify's third annual Build a Business competition and will be a mentor in the newly launched Build a Bigger Business competition, which we'll get into in a bit. And welcome, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us a bit more about Goldie Blocks and what are some of the popular products that, that you sell? Sure, yeah. So, um, so Goldie Blocks started in 2012. Um, the very first uh, product was a storybook and a construction set combined, starring Goldie, a girl engineer character. And uh, as you read along with the book, um, Goldie builds a belt drive to help her dog chase his tail and. <laughs> With it, you get the pieces to build a working belt drive with axles, pegboard, and wheels, and kind of parts inspired by common household objects. And so, um, when we first launched uh, that product in 2012, it pretty much exploded the internet almost. It went viral practically overnight, and uh, we became infamous for disrupting the pink aisle. And now today we have over 17 different intercompatible construction toys that come with storybooks. We have chapter books launching this year. We have apps that teach great STEM skills like coding. We have online videos. And uh, soon, uh, hopefully, we will have an animated series. 
Awesome. Sounds very exciting. So when you first started the business, what was your background? Like, How did you get into this idea of creating a product like this? Well, my background was I studied engineering and product design at Stanford. And then when I graduated, I actually, I didn't go into engineering. I uh, went into design and I got my first job as an intern at a graphic design and branding agency. Uh, so I, I worked there for a few years, uh, really learning how big brands connect with their consumers. So some of my clients were uh, T-Mobile and Organic Valley Yogurt and even the New York Knicks. Um, after that, I had what I like to call my quarter-life crisis, where <laughs> I felt like um, I wanted more meaning in my life. And so I sort of quit my job and moved to rural India, where I did volunteer work for about six months. Um, after that, I was hoping that that would kind of become this sort of beacon of what to do with my life. But I think after I got back from that, I was even, even more confused than when I left. Uh, and so after that, I went and took a job as a director of marketing at a jewelry company. And uh, it was funny, actually, in, in college, in my engineering degree, uh, one of my favorite classes was a jewelry making class. It was sort of like engineering on a micro scale. So I thought, maybe, that, maybe that's my passion. But after a few years there, again, I learned a lot, but I knew it wasn't the thing I was born to do. And so finally, the light bulb went off one day when I was hanging out with a group of friends. We had started this club called Idea Brunch, where we would get together over breakfast and brainstorm big ideas to change the world. And in one of those, my uh, friend who I studied engineering with um, attributed her interest in engineering to growing up playing with her older brother's hand-me-down construction toys and sort of lamented the fact that, you know, those toys were for her brothers and that girls grow up with dolls. And, and maybe that's part of the reason why so few girls are interested in engineering and math and science. And so the moment she said that, it's it sounds really corny, but I knew, um, my I just knew that it was what I was born to do. And so from that moment on, it became my obsession and, uh, and the rest is history. <laughs> now, was the launch of the business through Kickstarter or did you have something going on with the business, the product, were you selling products prior to Kickstarter? Uh, nope. Um, launched the business on Kickstarter in 2012, put up a campaign with a goal to raise $150,000, which was a lot of money, but it was what I needed mm-hmm. to be able to go into production. And I launched that campaign in September of 2012. The amazing thing is that I actually hit the goal in only four days. And so during the campaign, I thought, well, this is going really well. And um, how am I going to be able to get orders from people after the campaign ends? Mm -hmm. And so I went ahead and actually started a a Shopify e-commerce website really just so that um, once the Kickstarter was order was over, I would still have a way to collect orders. Right, makes sense. So when you, when you were launching or preparing this launch on Kickstarter, how much did you have prepared in terms of the product? Was the product ready to go, or to go for the most part? Did you have like marketing and PR ready to go to promote the campaign? How much did you have prepared? So going into the Kickstarter, I mean, I had spent months and months um, building prototypes in my living room and testing them with kids. And so the moment I decided to go up on Kickstarter was when I had a prototype that I knew girls loved playing with and, um, and, and I really believed strongly in. 
And so at that moment, I reached out to manufacturers and I found a factory in China that um, you know made other construction toys that I knew of that were high quality, and um, and I wanted to um, you know see if they would be the right partner to make a, a prototype of my toy, and so that was the first biggest check I ever wrote in my life. I had to pay them five thousand dollars to make a looks like prototype of the toy. Um, and so I did that. And at that point I was almost entirely out of my life savings that I'd put into building goalie blocks. And so going into the Kickstarter, I had the one $5,000 looks like prototype from the factory, as well as all of these videos that I'd taken of kids playing with my prototypes to just sort of show how much girls loved it. The other thing I did going into the Kickstarter is I had spent months kind of reaching out and networking and trying to just meet as many people as I could um, who could offer me advice, mentor me, or just um, help promote the cause. So people who might have uh, large audiences online who I knew believed in girl empowerment and STEM education. And so I had this whole database of people who I reached out to when we launched the campaign asking them to share it, and they did. Yeah, I like that kind of preparation where you are just networking. You're not actually trying to get them to say, yes, I will you know, blast this out when you launch, but just trying to get out there, trying to build a network of people. But then once you do launch, because they've already understand your mission and uh, support your mission, they're, they're much more likely to help support spreading your Kickstarter campaign. Absolutely. Now, you were mentioning that you were doing a lot of testing prior to this uh, before launching on Kickstarter by developing and iterating through prototypes and letting kids play with it. Talk to us a little bit more about this process. Like, How many iterations are we talking about and what was that testing process like when you were trying to get that feedback? Uh, yeah, that was, um, it was a really fun process. And there, I would say there were probably hundreds of iterations of those prototypes at the beginning. Um, the key, I think, to success there was really um, deploying a, a rapid prototyping methodology. So, um, you know, I think that a mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make is just investing a ton of money right away or maybe all the money they have into really fancy, pretty-looking, expensive prototypes. And the problem with that is, you know, once you've invested money in them, even if um, you start testing and kids don't like it, you, know, you try to convince yourself that they do because you spent all that money. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, you know, what was really great about the early testing days was that these prototypes were literally made out of cardboard, clay, um, you know, ribbon. You know, I, I went to flea markets. I went to used teacher material supply stores. I mean, really um, very, very, you know, went to the hardware store, very inexpensive prototypes. Uh, I even sketched and wrote little stories in my own sketchbook and people kept saying, you should hire an illustrator, hire an illustrator. Uh, But again, that costs a lot of money. And by doing the drawings myself, I was able to really figure out how to draw um, instructions that kids could follow. And, you know, so much of it, um, I was able to just iterate on the fly because I did it in a really kind of cheap and quick and dirty way. Um, the other thing that was really helpful in this process was I actually, when I tested with kids, I went to, into their homes. So rather than running out some focus group facility or anything like that, I just showed up with my prototype in my backpack and just 
plopped down in people's living rooms and observed kids playing. And I didn't sit there kind of telling them how to play or what to do. I just, you know, tried to restrain myself as much as possible so I could just sit and observe and see what might really happen in real life had they bought this from a store. And so by doing that um, style of um, of research, it was incredibly helpful. Um, each time, each session I went to, I learned so much. And basically, my plan was I'm going to keep doing this, and I'm not going to stop until you know I you know I have fixed the problems that I've seen, and you know until I have success after success after success of a test. And so those first research tests, I mean, they didn't go well. Like I had girls screaming and crying and running out of the room because they were so frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> but rather than give up, you know, I just tried to dig deeper and like, why were they frustrated and which part really bugged them and which, you know, what parts of any did they like? And I'll, uh, you know, and then, and, and so then I'd go and just make, make tweaks to it until again, by the end, you know, I felt really confident in, in the products that I have. Do you do you remember any any uh, actual like, large re- revelations from this testing process that made you decide to make significant changes to the product? Yes, there was tons of them, but um, one in particular that I love telling the story is, um, you know, one of the one of the things that was important to me in developing the character of Goldie, the girl engineer, was that I didn't want her to be a genius. And um, this was inspired by work that I'd read uh, by a woman named Carol Dweck out of Stanford, who has done all this research into understanding why girls, so many girls get intimidated by math. Um, and what she found was that um, from a young age, girls tend to think that in order to be good at math, you have to have a natural born ability. You have to be a genius. Um, and so a lot of girls think, well, I'm not a genius at this. I don't get it right away. And so I'm going to give up. But when they're told that actually math ability is... is um, not, not something that you're born with, but something that can be learned. Um, you know, th- this idea of a growth mindset is, mm-hmm. is really important and has been successful. And so I wanted Goldie to influence a growth mindset in kids, and so I wanted her to fail. So in the very first story uh, that I wrote of Goldie Blocks, um, in, in the book she builds a machine that doesn't work. Um, and, you know, and I did that intentionally because I wanted to fail, and then I wanted to show her kind of um, not giving up after failing, and trying different things and then getting it right. So I started testing this storyline of Goldie building a machine that fails, and I started noticing in in uh, all of the all of the testing sessions that the girl and or her mom or dad would get stuck on that page, and they'd build the machine, and it wasn't working because that was intentional, and they would get so frustrated, they would sit there and try everything they could to make it work. And so much so, in fact, that they wouldn't turn the page to learn that, in fact, the machine wasn't supposed to work, that it was a failure. Mm. And so it was funny because it was this, um, I wasn't expecting it to happen, but I realized, like, oh, wow, I've set up these kids for failure. And, um, you know, and it's, they're not, they don't want to move forward. And so I had to actually rewrite the story um, so that, you know, I was still showing that Goldie you know, wouldn't give up and try lots of things, but I couldn't do it in a way where I was setting the kid up to fail because, you know, that just didn't work. 
Yeah, I like that story because not only you encounter an, an issue that that was important to you, right? You wanted to make sure this message was clear and the way it was implemented maybe wasn't the best approach. So rather than just scrapping it all together, you try to find a different way to to make sure that that message was still clear. Um, now, when you were going through these iterations, how did you know that that finished that last prototype was the one was the one that was ready to go live on Kickstarter well along the way there just kept being every test there would always be something to improve on so like that example before of the failure moment and having to rewrite that or in other instances um, you know we had a um, a build where at the end of the story kids would build something in the shape of a star and I noticed that about half if not more than half of girls would get really annoyed because they wanted the star to be symmetrical and the pegboard holes didn't allow for that so I had to I had to make a new pegboard with asymmetrical holes so that the star could be symmetrical so there were just all of these things that kept coming up and, and I knew that the prototype was ready when um you know, I just kept testing it, and I no longer faced any any obstacles because all of the issues with it had been fixed. Mm, makes sense. So now, when you launched on Kickstarter, you were saying earlier that the goal was one hundred fifty thousand dollars. You were able to break through that goal within the first few days, and ultimately end up raising nearly double your goal at two hundred eighty-five thousand dollars from over 5,500 backers. So talk to us about the the promotion behind us. How were you, first of all, how were you able to raise $150,000 in just, you know, a few days? It was unbelievable. Uh, I did everything that I could in advance to try and stack the deck, if you will, to be successful, but you just never know what's going to happen. Um, like I said earlier, um, setting up those databases of contacts was critical so months leading up to the campaign, uh, I I kind of wrote my dream list. Like, who are who are the people in the world? Like, who are the best people in the world who could help me, um, and or who would be excited or interested in this? So, I mean, I wrote down people like Sheryl Sandberg, people like um, you know the founder of Pictionary, people like um, Melinda Gates. I mean, really just going out there thinking of the people who are just the top of their industries for uh, STEM education, girl empowerment, business, uh, toys, uh, entertainment. And I started plotting out, like, how could I get a hold of these people? And, you know, most of them I was not connected with on LinkedIn or Facebook mm-hmm. or anything like that. But I would notice that, oh, like, I have, you know, three connections removed and so I just started meeting with and offering to take out for coffee people who might help me get to people who could be helpful. And so for three months straight, I just put myself out there and met and talked to as many people as I could. And so this was, I was just running around, um, going everywhere. And every time I'd meet with somebody, you know, they'd, they'd give me, I'd show them my prototype or my plans and try to get advice. And then at the end of the meeting, usually they would connect me with, you know, five to 10 other people who I should mm-hmm. talk to. And so then I would follow through on those. And so it was just a lot, I spent a lot of time putting myself out there, meeting people and just, again, keeping them in the loop on what was going on. So by the time I launched, um, I was, uh, you know, I was able to launch with sort of this 
grassroots community of people who were who were launching it too alongside me. And when I reached out to all of those people on launch day, I gave them really easily shareable assets. So like, hey, I, I made it so easy for them to share. They didn't have to do any work. I said, here's here's a tweet you could send. Here's a Facebook post you could send. Here's pictures. Here's imagery. I even, some people, I even said, hey, could you connect me with so-and-so? Here, I, I would literally write the email for them to send. So all they would have to do is just copy and paste it. Um, and so that was a strategy that really helped. And in fact, um, on uh, when we launched our Kickstarter, Cheryl Sandberg actually became one of our backers. Nice. And uh, and so that was you know a huge victory. Um, and and many people followed suit. Like Craig, who's the founder of Craigslist, he was a he was a Kickstarter backer. And so you know, and when people like that share it, you know, the word really starts to spread. Mm, yeah, that, that's amazing, and I, and I like your your approach of making it as easy as possible for anybody that can help you because you know they might truly believe in your mission, they might truly want to help, but you're probably one person or one task on their list of you know a hundred every day, and the easier and and removing all the friction you can, I think, is only going to help you out. Now, so speaking of removing friction, this idea that you had about now that the Kickstarter campaign is funded, it's successful, we don't want this buzz to essentially die once this campaign ends, you decide to create a, a store. At what time did you, during this process, did you have your, your Shopify store set up? We set the store up so that it would go live right when the campaign ended. Gotcha. So how were you driving the, the traffic and the, the attention from Kickstarter over to your store? So, well, the first thing we did, which was really obvious, was just on the Kickstarter page, we put up a big message that you know, said, well, this, this campaign is over, but if you still want to pre-order Goldilocks, you can go to goldilocks.com. And, um, and then after that, you know, honestly, we were so busy just trying to figure out, okay, how do we manufacture these toys that had all been pre-ordered? Um, that we weren't busy doing a lot of outbound marketing to, you know, drive sales to our store. But what we ended up doing that was really smart was um, the Kickstarter video we also published to YouTube. And uh, something really unexpected happened. Um, About a month or two after the Kickstarter campaign had ended, uh, a writer for Upworthy found our, uh, our Kickstarter video and um, and he shared it on Upworthy. And um, that Upworthy post went viral. And because the Kickstarter had ended, the only place to go to buy Goldie Blocks was our Shopify website. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to the quarter million dollars or so that we had raised on Kickstarter, we did an additional uh, over half a million dollars in sales on our Shopify website. That's amazing. So when you raise, when you were driving the traffic to the to the Shopify store, you were taking pre-orders at that time as well, or did you have? I'm assuming you didn't have any items for sale just yet. We still no, and we were still figuring out how to make them, and so we were we were still taking pre-orders on our Shopify website. You weren't like terrified at that time, where it's like, oh my, these so many people are sending us money, and we don't yet know exactly how we're going to make them get them to to the to end customer. Like, what were you feeling at that time? Oh my God, it was very stressful because, yeah. um, you know, the good news is we had we had the cash to um, 
take the prototype from the factory from a looks-like prototype to a works-like prototype. Um, and we had promised that we would ship out uh, the first orders in February, so we had some time. But the challenge and what I had underestimated and what I've heard from everyone who makes physical hardware, everyone under, underestimates how long it takes. Um, and it's especially challenging because we were creating a construction toy that is supposed to get girls interested in engineering. And if it doesn't fit right, they're going to be frustrated mm -hmm. and you know, we've essentially defeated the purpose. And so going from that looks like prototype to a works like prototype ended up being a series of trips where I had to fly back and forth to China um, just for the first time, really understand the challenges of injection molded plastic and getting all of the parts to fit perfectly. It was a total nightmare, but, um, but we managed, we managed to make it work and we were really only, we were only one month late. Um, and my advice to anyone would be just make sure you take the time to get it right. And however long you think it's going to take, you double, if not triple that. <laughs> but, you know, ultimately people weren't that upset that we were only a month late. And honestly, even if we had been like six months late, I think that they would have been okay. Um, uh, so long as the, the product came out uh, of a high quality, which ours did. Yeah, I mean, relative to other Kickstarter campaigns, one month later is practically on time compared to what you do uh, yeah. in other campaigns. Yeah, it's true. So you, so we were saying earlier about how, so you were a winner in the Shopify's third build a business competition. Was this the result of those nearly half a million dollars or I guess half a million dollars from after a Kickstarter campaign or were there other, uh, I guess, uh, ways that you're driving traffic to, to your store to, to become a winner in the competition? Certainly the um, video going viral on Kickstarter helped. But that wasn't the only reason why we won. Uh, we also really understood the importance of growing a community on social media. And, um, and we had a Facebook page um, that, that we were growing. And it was really just a place where people, like-minded people who were excited about our social mission could go. And we would share relevant articles and things going on. And we still do this to, the, to this day. But um, Facebook also became a huge kind of unexpected um, marketing vehicle for us and also sent a ton of tra traffic to the site. Uh, additionally, we were really putting ourselves out there and making ourselves available for, um, for press. And so uh, another large driver to the site was um, all of the press articles and um, interviews that I was doing, as well as um, public speaking engagements that I was doing and going on panels Again, just really putting myself out there, sharing the story, sharing our research, sharing why it was important, and all of that activity um, helped Goldie Blocks win the Build a Business competition. That's amazing. So when you maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the the prize because every every build a business competition there's a prize associated with it. For your year, what what were the prizes? So my year, there was a cash prize. Um, but the most exciting part of the, uh, of the um, rewards was a trip to New York City where we got to be mentored. Uh, and so that year, I got to go and meet um, Tina Roth-Eisenberg, Tim Ferriss, 
Damon John, Noah Robichon, um, and sit down with each of them, tell them what was going on with Goldie Blocks, my hopes, my dreams, my vision, my challenges, and you know, each one of them um, spent time with me, kind of just letting me pick their brain and, and giving advice. And um, I've maintained relationships with all of them over the years. Um, and they continue to be helpful in their advice, even just from that session in New York has stuck with me to this day. So, um, you know, that was, that was the most invaluable part. Absolutely. Is the mentorship, Mm -hmm. which is why when Shopify reached out to me asking if I wanted to pay it forward and become a mentor, I was just elated. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, do, Do you remember some of the most valuable business advice that these mentors gave you that are maybe a general business advice that can be, uh, applicable to others? Well, I remember um, my meeting with Noah Robichon from Fast Company really well because at the time, you know, we had we had just won the Shopify Build a Business competition, and because of that, there was a lot of press happening, and you know, the company had had so much press. Um, you know, I I hadn't thought ahead to well, what's going to happen when you know the stories come out and you're not so newsworthy anymore. And so um, Noah um, and I sat down and really kind of figured out how do we maintain a steady drumbeat of press and stories and new news to keep the company relevant. And it's not something that you think about when, you know, you're in the middle of such a PR frenzy, but it does happen. And so um, Noah and I have kept in touch and um, he's, he's usually the first person I go to or think of as a sounding board to try to figure out new stories to tell to keep the company relevant. Yeah, maybe you can talk about that a little bit. How do you sit down when you try to think about how can we tell this story in a different way, in a way that will get the press excited to to continue talking about your, your business? Yeah, you know, um, you have to just think of different angles and you also just have to think about what what have I learned? You have to listen to your customers and you know hear what they're asking for and, and always evolve your product and make sure that you're meeting their needs. And, um, and if, as long as you do that, there's always new things to announce and new things to talk about. Um, but you also need to pay attention to the macro trends going on just around the world in general. So, you know, in a, in a time where maybe Goldie Blocks didn't have a new product to announce, or a new feature, there might be a general larger trend story going on. For example, maybe um, maybe a new um, a, a, a new thing going on with STEM education. Maybe maybe um, the White House making an announcement about STEM education, and then all of a sudden, Goldie Blocks is relevant within the context of that larger conversation. So it was just sort of thinking bigger than yourself. Of you know, how else do we insert? Goldie Blocks as a thought leader, or um, you know, as as relevant to larger trend pieces. You know, that was that was something that I. You know, you always are. It, it's easy to just you know think about what's going on within your four walls, and it's helpful to kind of broaden the perspective a bit. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. That you don't always want to just tell your story exclusively. You want to find ways to kind of latch on to the, the general vibe of what the world is talking about or what your industry is talking about. That makes a lot of sense. 
Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Build a Bigger Business competition because this is a little bit different than the Build a Business competition, which is going to be relaunched later this year. But the Build a Bigger Business competition is a bit different. It's for stores that are generating over $1 million in annual sales. And I want to, list, want to mention some of the awesome prizes too that come along with this one. It's uh, you get the opportunity to ring the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange, which I think is an amazing experience. You get to spend five days with Tony Robbins, a brand and advertising strategy from one of the world's leading creative agencies, Sid Lee, a public relations strategy from global public relations agency, Allison and Partners, and then a bunch of special access and content from the C2 Montreal conference in May. And of course, throughout this, you have awesome access to mentors like yourself. Talk to us a little bit more about your thoughts on the kind of role that you want to play as a mentor to entrepreneurs that are entering this competition. Well, I'm I'm so excited to be a part of it, and I feel it feels particularly close to home for me because my company won the competition in four years ago, and so it's really exciting to come back in and speak as a mentor uh, because I've I've obviously learned so much in the last four years, but I also just feel like I'll have so much in common, um, you know, with with everybody there. Um, I think the theme of building a bigger business is really exciting, and that's you know really what what I've learned um, you know since since I won the Shopify Build a Business competition. Uh, it's it's the types of things honestly that back then the mentors who I met with were talking about that were sort of ahead of where my head was at. Things that I didn't even realize I was going to have to um, struggle with. So things like how do you build a company culture? You know, um, I remember when when I went to the Shopify Build a Business uh, event, company culture wasn't anything that was even on my radar. I mean, all I was mm-hmm. thinking about was getting the, the products manufactured and shipped yeah. on time. And so, you know, to sit, be able to sit down with someone like Tina Roth Eisenberg and have her ask me about my company culture, and I looked at her like she had five heads, you know, just it wasn't something that I, was on my radar. And then afterward... Sure enough, building company culture, um, you know, that's something that becomes extremely important um, very quickly because once you've brought your product to market, um, you, know, you, you can't grow if you don't have a workforce that you can inspire and retain. And, um, you know, and they're the ones that are really, uh, really driving the business forward. So I'm just excited to sit down with companies and um, you know, see where they're at in their journey and, um, you know, as somebody who maybe just a couple steps ahead, be able to, you know, talk them through maybe what's on the horizon um, and give them that heads up. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So now what about for, for you and Goldie Blocks? Where do you want to see your business go in the next year? So um, my vision for Goldie Blocks from the very beginning has been to build a global franchise around this girl engineer character. So, you know, from that very first prototype I made in my living room of Goldie building a a spinning machine to help her dog chase his tail, um, you know, my dream is for Goldie to span all kinds of mediums from cartoons to video games to apps to toys to merchandise to, you know, real-life maker labs, um, sort of in the same way that the Disney Princess franchise has sort of touched 
every girl around the world as she grows up and has become a rite of passage. I want Goldie Blocks to do the same thing. But, you know, instead of inspiring girls to be princesses, I want to inspire them to be makers. Awesome. Sounds like a great mission. So again, at Goldie Blocks, which is at GoldieBlocks.com, G-O-L-D-I-E-B-L-O-X.com. Thank you again so much for your time, Debbie. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. They wanted us on there for entertainment value. And I, we weren't looking for investors that sounded antithetical to what we were trying to do, but the marketing aspect of it was amazing. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Don't forget, the deadline to enter Build a Bigger Business is February 28th. Visit shopify.com slash B-A-B-B to apply today.